Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories learnings and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Mike Montero. Mike is the design director of Mule Design, the outspoken, outstanding and slightly outrageous design consultancy that he co-founded with Erica Hall 21 years ago. During that time, Mike has made an outsized contribution to the field of design. He is the co-host of the Voice of Design podcast and has authored several books, including You're My Favourite Client, Ruined by Design, and Design is a Job, now in its second edition. With an unmissable emphasis on ethics, Mike pulls no punches as he singles out the failings of design and the industries that employ it, while also illuminating the opportunities and challenges we face as designers to right the ship. His talks, like How Designers Destroyed the World, How to Fight Fascism, My People Were in Shipping, and Let's Destroy Silicon Valley, have raised more than a few eyebrows, heart rates, and figurative pitchforks, something I suspect that Mike's totally okay with. Described by the New Yorker as delightfully hostile, I'm hoping for a touch more delightful than hostile today, but we'll soon find out, won't we? Mike, welcome to the show. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's great to have you here. It's something that I've looked forward to for a long time, actually, a very long time. And just to start with, I have a, well, I think it's an easy question, which is how many parts delightful to hostile are you currently running at? Oh, my Lord. I am mostly delightful. I'm I'm running at 100% delightful. Okay. Always. Well, this, Always. This next this next question might change that uh, that ratio. What is yeah. it like being married to someone who you've described as smarter than you? It's amazing. Like honestly, why? Like why would you want anything else? Like I get mm. to I, I get to hang out with you know who I the person who I think is like the world's smartest person. So you know anything that you know we're talking about or, or reading or you know that I have a question with. You know, she'll say something and uh, hearing what she has to say makes me smarter. Hmm. I so, was wondering about that, like how the two of you have, have have contributed so much to the field, like how much of the perspective that you've been able to bring has been a result of the two of you just bouncing things off of each other and off the people that are in your circle? I'd say fairly significant. I mean, we talk about, I think at this point, like like we've been running this place for 21 years together. And I think at this point we have like, a, like we understand each other. We have like a secret language. We know how we work together. I I, I kind of think like my, my contribution to this company is uh, being able to understand what Erica is saying and being able to dumb it down for people, uh, usually using sports metaphors, uh, in a way that they'll understand. <laughs> Do you actually like sports? Or is it just a vehicle that you've found that a lot of people can connect with? Oh, I used to like it a lot more than I do. But, mm. you know, 
I mean, you, you grew up enjoying him, and, and then you find out that, you know, everybody involved in it is, 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 is a racist piece of shit, and that's kind of a turn off after a while. Mm. Mm. I definitely want to get into your conversation that you've been provoking around the role of race, as specifically as it relates to the field of design. But before we do that, I just wanted to um, address something with you because I understand that in your last book, The Collected Angers, which were essays about design for an unwilling audience, you vowed never to write another design book again. But then <laughs> but then I discovered something that you'd done. Uh, you didn't specifically mention anything about children's books. So what is Sofa Stories and why did you write it with Betsy Streeter? So I love that book. Yeah, I just wrote a children's book. Um, I mean, depending on how uh, how much you trust your children, it's a children's book. <laughs> Tell uh, me no, about Bet- that. Betsy and I. Uh, Betsy is is a friend of mine. She's a delightful illustrator. She's like her her. Um, and we actually met. Uh, Eric has known her for a while. But I met Betsy when uh, at the start of the pandemic, we were doing quarantine book club. And Betsy came to every one of them. And um, she would just sit there drawing. And at one point I, I said, hey, Betsy, what are you drawing there? And so that just became part of our routine. Like at the end of the episode, I turned to Betsy and I said, Betsy, what'd you draw today? And she would show everybody her drawing. And it was always this amazing, like uh, anthropomorphic animal uh, doing something silly. Then I, I ended up, um, you know, becoming friends with Betsy and, and she would every once in a while she would send me a drawing or share a drawing with, you know, uh, a, a group of friends. And at one point she shared a drawing. And uh, to me, there was a story in the drawing that was like so obvious to my weird, broken mind. And it's it, so I, I just typed out the story and uh, she sent another one. And I t- I was like, well, okay, I see a story here. And I mean, it's a testament to, to how, what, what a wonderful illustrator she is that, you know, she put, she, she'll give you this drawing of a character in, you know, a little setting. And you see, like, there's, there's a past, there's a present, there's a future. It's all right there. So I just, so we decided, let's make a book of these. And um, there's 30 of them in the book. Betsy did the illustrations and the illustrations always came first. And then I would come up with a story to go with the illustration. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a broken fairy tales thing where, you know, it's not it's not really for children. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it looks like it's for children. Now, Mike, you appear to approach your public criticism of design with a lot of passion. And that's not a word that I typically like to use because it gets overused but you do have this kind of energy almost like a Billy Graham the Baptist type energy with revolutionary undertones of Karl Marx you know the sort of combination of that passion with that with that kind of I suppose that intellect that you're trying to bring to this conversation yet you recently and I watched a talk that you'd given earlier in the year to some design students and in that talk you you said to them don't put your passion into shit that you sell to other people for money. You keep that shit at home. Have something that you hold back from other people that you keep just for yourself, something that's yours. So if what we see from you in terms of your commentary on design isn't passion and the way that you deliver that, 
What is it that you're actually putting into what appears to be very passionate work for the field? Well, I mean, it's it's design, right? So here's the design problem. How do I talk to people about something that isn't fun, isn't promising them like, you know, a, 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 a big old box of gold coins at the end and is, you know, difficult to hear? How do you talk to people about something like that uh, and, and get them to listen? So there's your design problem. And uh, the solution is to do it in a way that gets their attention. Do it in a way that is, you know, I mean, I could talk to you about ethics using like pie charts and graphs in a very academic voice, but who the fuck wants to listen to that? You know, you got to, this is just how a designer should approach things. You got a problem, right? You got an audience. How do I can how do this how do I figure out how do I, how how do I communicate this to that audience? What's available to me? What's in my toolbox? And um, you know, before I did my my I didn't do my first public talk until I was very old, and I because I was terrified of public speaking. You know, I said, okay, this is something I have to get over, and so I, I went on YouTube, and I'm like, well, who's good at public speaking? Billy Graham. Um, uh, Baptist ministers and professional wrestlers. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. So, yeah. I mean, so I watched, I mean, I was already a wrestling fan from way back. So, you know, you watch a wrestler going off in the ring, doing their thing and they're working the crowd and you watch a, 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 a minister work. I mean, they're working the crowd and I thought, you know, if, if I'm going to get up in front of people and I'm going to speak, I'm going to work the crowd. So I watched a ton of those and I listened to how, you know, and, you know, there's, there's certain methods that people use, like, like, like I'm going to repeat a thing 10 times until, until you, you hear it. I'm going to keep simplifying. I'm going to keep repeating. I'm going to keep going to keep coming back to that thing. And there, so, so there's like a, a, a pattern when you're, when you're speaking um, that, that I got really used to, or that I got, you know, pretty fairly good at when I was doing my public speaking. Um, and it worked. It worked for me. I don't know if it worked for you. Well, it definitely holds your attention. And I think you delivered Let's Destroy Silicon Valley only once before the pandemic. And it's not even titled that in YouTube, so I will link to it in the show notes if people are interested in having having a watch of no, that particular one- talk. The one I did just once before the pandemic was uh, a small sliver of hope that I did. Kind of was like February of 2020. I flew down to Miami to do it once. And it was kind of a, like a practice round because it was a smaller crowd. And, you know, I, I you know, on, on, the, on the flight back, I was like going through all these notes, like, here's what I need to fix. And your timing here is off and yada, yada, yada. And this part is weak. And this part got you know, a lot of laughs. So let's keep that. So I'm going through all of this. And, you know, I had like a bunch of other stuff already scheduled for like March and April and and stuff. And um, then the pandemic hit. Kind of fucked up everything, didn't it? Well, I mean, I think it fucked up a little more than my talk schedule. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the the thing was, I mean, the, the topic of the talk was pretty much, you know, the clock's at 1159. 
we've got like one small little sliver. We've got like one minute, one minute if we want to fix anything. And the only way that it's even going to have a remote chance of working is if we can unify, if we can unify and just, you know, the debate for uh, are things actually bad? That debate's over. We need to decide, yes, this is broken. Let's fix it. And we need to get with the fixing. And, you know, then the pandemic hit and I watched, um, you know, I watched how you know the world was reacting to that and how human beings were reacting to that. And uh, I just like closed the book on the talk. It was like, nope, y'all fuck this up. Your bio that you use online on the Mule site and also other places, like I think on um you know, a book apart, for example, other places where you have your public profile, you have said in there, or, or at least it says in there, that you've pretty much given up on tech. And this is partly evidenced by the fact that you haven't written, as far as I know, another talk since A Small Sliver of Hope. And just I, this I, year... I wrote my people are in shipping. Right, okay. After that. Stand corrected. You, you said earlier this year, and something that I, that I watched of yours, you said, I've stopped writing talks because I've decided I don't have anything to tell people. Yet you still seem to have a lot to say. And so I was curious about this. Is it really that you don't have anything to tell people or is it more that you're tired of telling people what you already have told them? Well, I think a little bit of both and also a big old dollop of am I the right person to be telling people anything? What's that about? Do we need another white man yelling at people about, you know, the state of things? I'm, you know, I've been asked, you know, the last uh, couple of years or so uh, to like come and do, like come, come do talks, not, you know, necessarily at conferences, but at like uh, a lot of schools, universities, shit like that. And um, I always, I, I, I tell people, I want to do a talk, but, but I'm, I'm happy to come in and, and do a Q&A. Because I want to hear what other folks have to say. I want to hear what questions are on, you know, students' minds. And right now, that to me is so much more interesting, hearing like what people are worried about, what people are concerned about, than any answers that I might have for them. Because I don't know that I have any, quite honestly. There's a point at which, you know, you tap out. Uh, I, I, again, this, you know... the. Things I've learned from wrestling. At some point, you get tired and you tap out, and somebody else comes, goes into the ring, and you have to give those other, and you have to give somebody else a chance. And uh, when I, when you know, when I said that, I very much meant it. And I'm still, I'm not quite ready to tap back in yet, quite honestly. Um, at least, like right now, I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. It's where are we? December of 2022. The you know the pandemic has has fucked with me and and fucked with everyone. Fucked with everyone. And when I say fucked with me, I I, I appreciate how lucky I've been. And you know I, I'm still here. Weird. Um, I'm still here. Um, I I I do this ridiculous job where I've been able to to keep earning a living. You know, here I am on my little screen. Um, and so I've been doing this, earning a living, and, and other people haven't been able to do that. I mean, and and in 
within that realm of, of privilege, it has still fucked with me uh, in a way that, um, you know, there's, I'm old enough that I've seen like, there's parts of your life that, that close and you're like, okay, well, that was interesting. It was interesting doing that. Now let's see what's next. The, the pandemic kind of felt like, you know, and sometimes those things happen because you, you decide you're ready for them to happen. And sometimes the world just decides for you. And this was, this feel, feels very much like the world deciding, you know what? Great job with the whole international traveler public speaking phase of your life. You did really well, but now that's over. And let's see what else you got. Um, and it, it felt, you know, the, the, the pandemic felt very much like that. Like, I mean, there were, I, I, I saw, I saw people who were like, okay, when are we going back? When are we going back to the way things, and, uh, th those folks seem kind of miserable to me. Finding mm. for a past that's not going to return. Yeah. Uh, and maybe shouldn't, maybe shouldn't. Mm. And then there were folks who were like, well, okay, again, you know, this is a design problem, right? Here's what's available to me right now. Here, here are the possibilities. So I can either wake up tomorrow looking at these, figuring out a way to form these possibilities into something that helps me make it through the day and helps me go to sleep at night, uh, hoping for, for another tomorrow. Uh, or, you know, I can spend the day regretting that it wasn't what I was hoping it would be. It's a source of a lot of anguish for, for, for a lot of people. Yeah. How much of your listening tour that you've been doing around campuses with students, how much of returning to the grassroots of design is about you trying to find your way through this transition that you've just described that you're undergoing? I'd say, I mean, that's a great question. I haven't thought about it in those terms, but you know, hearing the question, I think that's kind of it. That's that I would say a significant amount, just figuring out like, what the fuck are we doing? Why are we doing it? To whose benefit are we doing it? Fuck UX, fuck design. I have no intention of trying to like, I don't care about those industries. I care about the people affected by those industries, whether it's the people who are practicing, the you know designers who who are like being employed to to practice their craft, or or the folks on the other side of the glass, the people who are affected by that work. I care about them. I care about both of those groups of people. Uh, the industry itself, I do not care about. So, what have students told you? What is the most burning question that they've asked you or the issue that you've seen them wrestling with? Why didn't you do anything? Mm. Seriously. Like, why didn't you do anything? About? <laughs> About all the shit that we're going through. It's so when I, when I started as a designer, like it was like, I mean, I started my career as a print designer. Because, you know, it was, it, it was the only game in town. Uh, and then, you know, along comes the web and it looked very exciting. It was like, ooh, this is new. This is nuts. This is, this is kind of everything that we ever wanted. Like all of a sudden we don't, like I can just put my things out there and people can see it. 
I don't need, you know, a publisher. I don't need to like run to Kinko's and make a thousand copies of something. Um, I, I just put it, put it. And it's easy to put. Oh, this is so easy to learn. And that was so all so exciting. Then you, we met other people in the industry at the time who, who were talking about like, oh, wow, the web is a great equalizer. It's, you know, everyone's going to have a voice. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Like, come join. And I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, unicorns and double rainbows. Fuck yeah, I want that. <laughs> and then, you know, 30 years later, Nazis. I hope you like Nazis because that's what we made for you. And, you know, you're talking to kids. They're like, what the fuck happened there? Mm. You grew up in Philadelphia and you went to a university called Temple University, which you referred to in the past as a, in inverted commas, a bad school, a state school. And you said also about it that it gave you a really great education. When you graduated, just how large was your student loan? My student loan. For, wait a minute. Did I ever call Temple University a bad school? You did, and just. Oh, okay, because I actually, I love that I went to a state school. I love that I went to Temple. It's like, it's an amazing place, and it's like a real place. In, in, so in Philadelphia, I'll tell you a little aside here. You can decide to cut it or not. In Philadelphia, there are two main universities. There's, there's Temple. And that's the state school. That's the one where, like, you know, the kids in the city go to. And then there's the University of Pennsylvania, which, you know, is super fucking expensive. It's the one that kids come from, like, out of state to go to. It's part of the Ivy League. It's no, like the nose in the air school. And um, if, you, if, if you tell people that you went to college in, in Philadelphia, uh, the, joke, the joke is that uh, I went to Temple O. Because if you tell people that you went to, to, to college in Philadelphia, they'll say, oh, Penn. Uh, did you go to Penn? No, Temple Oh, <laughs> yes, Temple O. I went to Temple O. You snob. <laughs> well, that, look, that was a good aside, and I don't think we'll cut that. But I'm, I am curious, your student loan, how large was it when you finished? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing that's funny. Because I can remember the day that I got uh, the envelope that said, uh, here's how much you owe us. I, uh, I sat on my front stoops, and I opened the envelope. Uh, I saw the number and I cried because I thought there is absolutely no way I will be able to ever pay this off. That number was $7,000. Which and is about that, a tenth, right? About a tenth of what it currently stands at for a, oh, for a graduate. I, I'd say it's, you know, it's, I mean, everybody who just graduated from school who was sitting on, you know, a ton amount of student loans just told me to go fuck myself as they should have. But at the time that felt like such a huge amount. So I, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to graduate now and, you know, get that letter. And that letter is like six digits. Like that's nuts. And it's, 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 it's criminal. It's, it's, I, I think it's actually criminal that, you know, we're saddling young people with that amount of debt early in life. And it's totally fucking us up as a society, by the way, because, you know, you know, I got an art degree for my $7,000. And, you know, as, as enormous an amount as that felt like, I felt like, you know, well, you know, I'm going to get an art degree. That's what I want to do. And, and that'll be fun. And now you're, you do the math of like, well, I'm, when I graduate from here, I'm going to be like a hundred grand in debt. 
and you have to think about what kind of uh, what kind of degree should I shoot for that helps me pay off that debt because it's not a fucking English degree with a minor in Russian literature that helps me to pay down a hundred grand. I'm, you know, it's going to be like, like some bullshit business degree or, you know, a medical degree, which means more debt down the road. It's going to, you know, the humanities, we just took a giant shit on the humanities when we, you know, with what we did to college tuition. And so there's a whole, there's a whole skill set that you lose generationally when technically you lose your humanity is that the is that where this where this leads us yeah because you know we're graduate we've got a whole generation of kids who you know are going to be saddled with that debt so they're making choices to help pay down that debt and those choices are you know uh the the much more analytical side of education and it which is necessary it's necessary i'm not i'm not you know shitting on that but you also need you also need you know, the kids who are willing to take the English classes and the, and the arts classes and the poetry classes and, and all of that shit, you know, to have like a functioning society. And that's really fucked us over. And now you've, we've got like, uh, you, you know, the Biden administration, they, they, um, they just attempted to help out with student debt. Uh, a little bit, a little bit, in my opinion, not enough, but hey, a little bit is better than nothing. And there's people my age who were screaming, well, wait a minute, I had to pay my student loans. How come they don't have to pay theirs? And I wish all of those people had one neck so that I could strangle them all at once because what a fucking selfish, self-righteous, stupid way to live that you want to make sure that, you know, the generation after you is suffering uh, along the same way that you are or with the same thing that you did. It's just it just speaks to a very brokenness in people. That rabid individualism, though, is really at the core of from an outsider's perspective, looking in what America has tried to foster in its people over successive decades. Yes, I have absolutely nothing to say to defend America. It is the richest country in the world. It cannot offer its people, it it will not offer its people health care, which is a human right. It should be offering its people a free education, because I believe in education is human right. Uh, The amount of people in this country who are unhoused is an international disgrace. And the amount of people in this in this in this country who need, you know, mental care and cannot get it is, is disgraceful. And you know, we keep making decisions. We keep making decisions to 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 hurt people. And so I don't think this is a, a country of any dignity or grace. And given what you've just shared and also the things that you've said previously about I think anger Hopefully it's not a misplaced word here. Definitely frustration that you feel with the state of things. When do you first recall becoming conscious of just how frustrated you were or are with the status quo? Growing up in Philadelphia in the 1970s in an immigrant community um, just kind of set the table for that because I grew up surrounded by all of these people who had 
immigrated to 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 the United States um, because it was supposed to be better. And the lesson that they were receiving was that because you know all these folks they want to be like they want to be super American. They want to be super American when they get here. Like, we belong, we belong. Please be nice to us. We're going to start businesses. We're going to help the economy. Be, be cool that we're here. We're, we are just like you. We're more, we're more than just like you. We're super versions of you. And what I saw was, and these folks looked around and they were like, what makes Americans American? Racism. So watching, uh, an immigrant community become like super fucking racist because that to them, that to them was the thing that, that made them more American was a hell of a tell. What was the nature of that racism that you observed in those immigrant communities that you were growing up, up in? I understand that your, your family is from Portugal. So yeah. what was it that you observed in the Portuguese immigrants about the way in which they tried to assimilate into Let's American culture? I mean, this is, I mean, this is the, the American caste system. There's, there's, there's a wonderful book uh, called Caste by uh, Isabel Wilkerson, which I, everyone should read twice, um, that talks about, you know, the, the caste system in America and how it was developed and how, you know, every group that comes into America has an opportunity to climb up that caste system, except one. Which has been firm, and which is you know black people who have been firmly placed at the bottom of that caste system, and the way that you rise up through the caste system is by you know showing disregard for those for for black people, and whiteness being the construct that it is. Anytime the whites in charge need you know to anytime they feel like there's too many of of, of the people at the bottom like rising up, they just invite the next group in. So, you know, if you look at the history of Americans, it's like, well, you know, the Irish became white and the Italians became white. And, you know, eventually we pull the closest group in and say, OK, well, you're white now. So, OK, there's more of us now. And it's 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 all a history of, you know, shitting on black people. And that history goes quite far back as far as I understand in Portugal's history. Oh, I understand so well, uh, yeah. the Portuguese invented the the uh, the North um, the North Atlantic slave trade. And I understand that while you're at Temple, you had an uncomfortable conversation about your Portuguese heritage with a young black man. What was said, and what do you remember thinking about that at the time? I remember feeling a, a tremendous amount of shame because you know we we didn't have the internet back then. We you know we didn't have Google. We couldn't look this shit up. Uh, I'm that old. My upbringing, as far as I understood, was all told to me by, you know, community elders. And, you know, it was the, the great story of the discoveries in Magellan and, you know, great sailors who, you know, it, it mostly uh, discovered lands that where other people were already living. And so th this was the way that we were taught to think about ourselves and I hadn't heard the other part. I hadn't heard like, you know, uh, you know, actually you, you stole people, you stole people <laughs> because, you know, my grandfather wasn't going to tell me that shit. He was all bought in on the myth. And so, you know, the, the leaving, leaving the confines of that community and going out into the, into the world and, and meeting, 
you know, other folks who weren't raised in that community. You know, it's it's it's, it's kind of like, you know, when, you know, when an Amish person decides to leave the farm, you, you know, you discover like, oh, there's electricity and, and cars and, uh, you know, zippers. Um, it's like the Truman Show. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, you meet other folks. And, and I also uh, I also uh, went to Catholic school for eight years, which was, you know, 50 percent pulled out of that, you know, from that Portuguese community. So it's very insular. So and, you know, the story that they were telling was, you know, a very similar story. It's like, hey, you know, the Crusades were about getting the Holy Lands back. Um, and, you know, Jesus, rah, rah, and let's convert some savages. Uh, so this this is what I grew up with, and it was all very normal. You know, this was the story. This was the truth. And then you go out and into the world, and you discover eh, there's actually more to that. You know, you see folks dealing with this, like on a daily, on, like you, you still see folks dealing with things like this on a daily basis. Like, hey, there's more to this, or there's there's a, a thing you haven't thought about, and there's like a fork in the road in people's lives where you can either double down and, you know, keep thinking that you've, you've always known everything and that you've always been super smart and that you've always been told the truth. Or you can open yourself up and you can say, tell me more. Tell me more about this. And, you know, you see it. You know, all, you see it with like, you know, old folks and with gender now, like old people like, you know, I can't deal with all these pronouns. Like, fuck off, dude. Um, like I and, and it's basically people saying I don't want to think I was wrong for so long. But, you know, the, 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 the amazing thing is you're now given a chance in this life to be a little bit smarter than you were by listening to people who you didn't think of listening to earlier, or maybe you didn't even know they were here, or maybe, oh, it's new. It's, or maybe they're making you a little bit uncomfortable, but that, you know, that discomfort comes from, oh, wow, I've been kind of tricked or, oh, I didn't really know the whole story. And if you just embrace that and decide, Fuck it! I'm going to feel uncomfortable for a little while while I learn something new. The the you know, I mean, there's your pot at the end of the rainbow. It's like every day that you're alive, you have an opportunity to go to sleep smarter than you woke up. And there's always going to be some discomfort involved in learning. And it's such a reward when you accept it and you decide I'm willing to go through that discomfort. Or you can put on a red cap and, you know, storm the Capitol and claim you were always right about everything. This lack of intellectual curiosity has led to a few dark places over the course of human history. And it seems to be one of the things that we are inherently capable of as humans, but quite fearful of to embrace. And in terms of the way that we try and open people's eyes and minds to the possibility that they might not be right about something. My observation has been that often coming at them too forcefully and too directly can encourage them to continue to grasp onto the limiting beliefs that they currently hold. Now, you're someone who's come at 
certain topics like racism in America very forcefully. And I'm not suggesting that that's the wrong way to go about it, but I am curious based on the way that you've approached this to the specific audience of designers that you mostly speak to, what has surprised you about the response or reaction that you've gotten that you didn't necessarily expect that you might when you first started off down this path? You know, any time that I, there was, there, there was a moment in every talk that I thought of as, uh, here's the line that makes the white dudes leave. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't always sure which one it was going to be. So I was always like super curious. And yeah, I think it was different depending on where I was giving a talk especially in the U.S., there was always going to be a line that made the old white dudes leave. And I got kind of annoyed if it didn't work, to be honest with you. Not pressing hard enough. Like, God damn, that didn't go far enough. Fuck. Um, so I, I expected that. I, 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 I wanted it. I wanted those fuckers to go home angry. That's interesting, though, Mike. Let's, let's just touch on that a little right. bit because what was it that you – wanted them to change, if at all, as a result of going home angry? Or was it just that you just wanted a certain bunch of people to be mad about this? If I'm being honest, I don't know that everyone has within them still the capacity to change. I believe that we're all born with the capacity to change. I believe that there are things that happen to us in our lives that fuck with that. And I believe that there are some people who will, uh, it's not, if I'm arguing with you, it's because I believe that you still have within you the capacity to change. If I walk away from you, it's because I've decided you don't. I am not going to waste my time arguing with somebody who doesn't have it with, within them the capacity to change anymore. So the way I saw it, the people who were walking out of those talks didn't have that anymore. They didn't they, they didn't want to change. Was I 100 percent right? Probably not. Probably not. You know, it could just be that I'm you know saying things in a way that wasn't working for them. That's fine. Um, there's no right way to deliver. I do my thing my way in the way that works towards my strengths. And, you know, while I try to adapt and change and learn, you know, a tractor is always going to be a tractor is always going to be a tractor or maybe a bulldozer is a better metaphor. You know, the bulldozer can go fast. The bulldozer can go slow. But at the end of the day, it's a fucking bulldozer. And the bulldozer might work for some people. It won't work for other people, which is why I am super happy that there's other people having these conversations and delivering it in different ways than I am, playing to their strengths. One of the lines that I wondered might have led to some, as you've described them, I think old white dudes walking out is, and I'll quote you now, to grow up white and male within a system that's designed specifically for you to succeed and yet not succeed, that's embarrassing. So there you were making comment, just to set this in context for people, on the rise of, I suppose, the MAGA movement within the States. And you seem to be suggesting to me that the only thing in America holding white males back from success is themselves. 
When I wrote that line, I was specifically thinking about my brothers, who I don't talk to anymore. But, you know, my brothers were raised in the same situation that I was by the same people in the same house in the same neighborhood. Uh, they had all the same possibilities available to them that I did. It's not like I took all the college money and ran off. And right now they are uh, both, you know, they're, they're MAGA heads. They wear the red hats. They vote for Trump. They're uh, members of the NRA. They, you know, uh, they're racist as hell. And, um, you know, I think back to, you know, the three of us, you know, sitting on the couch watching, you know, Saturday morning cartoons together. We were three kids. We were three kids, you know, nine months or 18 months apart, each of us in the same household. They, you know, they're the last you know, before I just stopped talking to them completely, uh, it, there was just so much hate coming out of them. So much hate because though their lives didn't end up the way that they felt they should have ended up, uh, despite the fact that they did very fucking little to, 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 to get their lives to go how they wanted them to. They're upset that their minimal effort didn't result in maximum results. You know, if you, if, if you look around at, you know, American workplaces and, you know, my God, especially in tech, you see, you know, you see people of color, not many of them, but you see women of, and you see women, you see women of color and you, you, you know, you see how much harder folks who don't look like me and you, Brendan, how much harder they have to work to achieve a fraction of the success that we do. I can walk into, you know, there's a thing that I call the, the, the hotel bathroom test. Can you walk into any hotel downtown and use the bathroom? Mm, probably. That, yeah. yeah. That'll tell you everything about a place that you need to know. Mm. I mean, I can do it. I can walk into any hotel downtown. I don't have to dress up. I can come in shitty as I might look any particular day, walk in, use the bathroom. I might get a look or two, but no one's going to stop me because part of them is going to be, are they a guest? They might be a guest. There's a chance that they're a guest. Let them go. Mm. The benefit and, of the doubt. Yeah. I, I will always get the benefit of the doubt. And I've walked into every job interview that I've ever had with the benefit of the doubt. Is this dude a good designer? Well, he looks it. He looks it. Is this dude somebody I can work with? Sure. I get that for free. I get the benefit of the doubt for free. Seems to be a slight hint of remorse in your voice as you describe the situation with your two brothers and where you currently sit in that relationship. You know, having been kids watching TV together and now to realize as adults, I think you're in your 50s now, that things aren't yeah. okay between you, clearly not okay because you're not talking. You also, earlier you touched on your feeling that people, some people reach a point where they no longer have the capacity to adopt a different position to the one they currently hold. What hope, if any, do you hold that you might be able to mend the relationship with your brothers? Zero. Zero. Because, um, you know... There comes a point when you have to decide where you're going to spend your energy. 
the shit that my brothers do and the shit and people like my brothers, the shit that they do hurts people and it puts people in jeopardy. It puts people in danger. Whatever energy that I have left, whatever love I have left, whatever hope I have left, I want to deliver it to those people, not to the ones who are hurting them. I have very little compassion left at this point for people who are out there hurting others because they feel slighted or because they feel like, you know, the world, the world, the white supremacist world didn't deliver on its promise that they didn't really have to try. You said something, I think it was in Let's Destroy Silicon Valley, that feels like a reflection of the point that you're at regarding compassion for people like that. And in many ways, watching this talk and watching other things that you've said and talking to you today, you strike me as a little bit of an enigma. And I mean that insofar as on one hand, you lament the impact that big tech has had on democracy, the observations of your brothers and the political affiliations they've adopted, having lived under the same household, you know, these different stories around the state of state of the nation, so to speak. Um, and on the other hand, you seem to advocate a very hardline approach to the way we could address these problems in terms of some sometimes you use, and I don't know if it's off the off the cuff, but violent language to describe that approach. And by that, I'll just quote you now from, from that talk. You've said, there comes a time when despite our best efforts, despite the persuasion, the fighting, and the best of all possible efforts of good people, things cannot be saved. The foundation is broken. Those in charge are rotten. The effort to fix it, even if everyone could decide how to fix it, wouldn't be worth the time and investment. Not everything can be fixed. There is a time to burn things down. It's on us to dismantle it. It was built on our watch, and it needs to burn on our watch. What did you mean by that? That sounded pretty good. Did I say that? You did. This is this is the this is the right, Everyone uh... has left the podcast, but nobody's listening anymore. They were they were like, "This is the most depressing shit I've ever heard." I'm going to go listen to something else now. <laughs> I told you we were going to get. We were going to get deep and dark. No, I mean, I, you know, I, I stand by that quote. Um, I heard what needs a, to burn. What do we need to burn down? And do you literally mean burn down? Like, what do you mean? Jesus, you're going to get me in trouble. Uh, I heard. I, <laughs> I'm for flipping cars and burn, and setting them on fire. To be honest with you. Mm. Like, you know, when we here's here's the deal. Here's how I'm going to answer this, because you want to talk about violence. The richest country in the world does not house its citizens. That is violence. I, I forget what the actual numbers are here. The percentage of black men that live into their 30s versus the percentage of white men that live into their 30s is ridiculous. That's violence. That is state sanctioned violence. The way the, the way the police treat minorities in this country is violence. The fact that two soldiers fought in World War II, both got a GI Bill out of it. The white soldier could get a mortgage with that GI Bill. The black soldier could not. That is fucking violence. 
the fact that a woman in, in tech has to be twice as smart to earn half as much as a white counterpart, violence. If we want to talk violence, let's talk about who actually started it. It's one of the things that's been giving me hope, a little bit of hope lately, is to see the resurgence of the labor movement in the U.S., to see workers organizing. And I think that was one of the big problems with tech, is that everybody in tech saw themselves as, as a temporarily embarrassed millionaire, to quote John Steinbeck. I'm only, I'm only working here until, you know, I make my first million, which, you know, I'll then roll over into my first 10 million, yada, yada, yada. But, if, but so everybody saw being a worker as a very temporary, embarrassing entry-level job, which, you know, is not uncommon in a new industry where, you know, mountains of gold are still being made. But um, this industry is not new anymore. It's not a startup industry. It's, you know, it's woven into the fabric of every fucking thing we do. And we're still behaving like... Um, you know, we're, you know, I'm only like one lucky roll of the dice away from being a tech billionaire. But lately, we've seen workers actually, you know, embracing the fact that they're workers, unionizing. We've got workers actually unionizing. And, you know, that's the, the one thing that started to give me hope. Sadly, one of the things that I've also seen is uh, some people who I know, some of the people who I, I came up with in this industry, who now run companies turning into like union breakers and shit like that. Despicable form of life. Um, but watching workers realize that the labor they're putting into something is something that they should have a stake in. And I think that's going to end up strengthening our industry ethically because I mean, right now, like, I mean, take a look at what's happening at Twitter. Uh, you decide you don't want to work for a Nazi overlord, uh, you, you, you get shit canned. And, you know, your health care gets shit canned along with it, and your ability to pay your mortgage gets shit canned. And, you know, you're, if you have kids and, you know, let's say that they had, you know, paying, you know, large educational bills, all that stuff is in jeopardy. So we're asking the, the American worker to put up with a lot put up with a lot. And we're tying all of these, th we're tying the social network of, you know, healthcare and education and all of that. We're tying all of that into, into the job market for them. So, you know, you either work for these assholes or you don't get that. You don't get to go to the doctor. And what we're seeing now is workers who are like, okay, well, what, wh okay, what if, what if though we organized so that we could, you know, fight the, the, the shithead in charge a little bit better as a group rather than a bunch of individuals. And I think we're going to see more of that. I hope we see more of that. You have spoken about the conflicts, whether it's acknowledged or ignored, that workers, tech workers and designers face when working in big tech between the paychecks that they receive and the undesirable outcomes of some of our work. And you touched on it just there. You, you sort of suggested that 
you know, if you get shit canned, you then have to pay for your health insurance or find another employer. You've still got to pay your mortgage. So there are these very real threats to people's existence or at yeah. least the level of existence they've become accustomed to that come into play here. And you've said, and I'll quote you again now, um, this is speaking about big tech's less than glamorous moments, uh, which was in Destroy Silicon Valley, that talk again. You said, we can accuse these assholes of self-serving inaction, and that's fair, but what's not fair is to call them self-serving assholes while cashing their checks. What's not fair is to rail against the horrors of Silicon Valley while implementing these horrors. What's not fair is to believe that we're innocent bystanders to the damage our work has done. So there seems to be a, a conflict here that I want to tease out with you sure. between what you said then and it seemed like to me at least you were telling people, hey, you're responsible for the work that you're doing for these people, no matter what the personal cost might be to you to stand against it. And yet, on the other hand, just earlier on this conversation, you acknowledged that the very real financial implications that come into play for people and their family if they choose to take a stand. Right. So is it that you've changed your position over time on this and become more sympathetic to workers in tech? Or, or is there something else that I'm not seeing that's going on here between what seems to be a conflict? Oh, I was always sympathetic to workers in tech. My heart is with workers in all industries. The fact that you have so much to lose when you lose your job is not an excuse for you to do it badly. That's the truth. You will always be responsible uh, for the work that your labor makes. You will always be responsible. If you're spending your days making databases to round up immigrants, for Palantir, by the way, and that database is actually used to round up immigrants, you are responsible for that. The fact that I understand that if you didn't do that, you would lose your job doesn't make you less responsible for it. What I want, what I want to do is help you get out of a situation where you can't stand up to that. Hence unions. This is why you're excited yeah. about it. I understand yeah, so in the first edition of uh, Design as a Job, you had a chapter on unionization that got pulled. So you must be quite pleased that that now makes it into the second edition. It wasn't a whole chapter. It was, I mean, there was, there were, there were comments about it. There, there was a few parts, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it did, it did touch upon it. And when was that? Like 2012, the industry wasn't there yet. Do um, you see any, Mike, do you see any irony insofar as that you are a designer who employs other designers, yet you're advocating, so therefore puts you on the capital side of the ledger if you want to look at it that way. Sure. Yet you're advocating for unionization. Like that almost sounds to me as if it's not in your best interests. Not really. You know, it's only ironic if you see the boss's job as exploiting workers, right? Like I don't, I have no desire to exploit the people who are working for me. And, you know, if this is something that they want wanted to do, fantastic, do it. There's, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an antagonistic relationship, right? If I own a company, what I want is I want that company be, to be successful. I want to make sure that we're doing good work. I want to make sure that every couple of weeks 
paychecks land on everybody's desk. I want to make sure that people are talking about it in a way that people who need work say, hey, let's go with them. That's all I want. None of that, none of that by definition means I have to exploit my workers to do it. In fact, treating my workers well helps with all of those things. Treating my workers well and making sure that they're well rested helps me to do better work. Making sure that they don't have to worry about where they're, you know, if they can pay their rent or their mortgage helps them to focus at work. Making sure that, you know, they're not worried about, you know, being asked to work the weekend helps to keep, the, you know, all of that stuff helps you to do better work. Now, if the only way I can make a profit is by paying my workers as little as possible and working them as hard as possible, I would say that's a shitty business model. And that business model does not deserve to survive. A lot of people looking at tech and the, up until recently, maybe the large compensation packages that have been on offer to designers and engineers and people in product would find it difficult to believe that workers in tech are being exploited by their employers. That is fair. That is fair. Uh, because, you know, at the higher levels of, you know, the design realm, engineers, you know, they get paid very well. But you know what? I, I don't want to shit on how much a worker is getting paid because take a look at what the level above them is getting paid and take a look at the level of effort, the, the amount of labor that those, you know, this is like people who complain about ball players getting paid too much. Like, I can't believe that so-and-so just signed a $200 million contract. It's like, do you know how much money the person who's signing that million-dollar contract has? Like, do you know how much money they're making off of that player's labor? You know, the part of the American story is pitting workers against each other, pitting, you know, the, the, the you know, factory workers against the office workers. And really what we need to do, the factory workers and the office workers need to realize, hey, we're both workers. We're all workers. We have more in common than we do with, you know, the management folks. We can band together and we can help each other rise up. So, yeah, maybe as an office, maybe as an engineer, my pay is great. But, you know, I'm being asked to, you know, let, let Kanye West back on Twitter. I have to pull that switch. And, you know, right now, imagine if I was being asked to do something like that. And, and I, I got to say, you know what, I need to talk to my union steward before I do that. Because that doesn't sit right by me. Because right now your options are pulling the switch or getting shit canned. Seems that you're suggesting it would change the, the way in which companies make decisions. I think, yeah, I think it would have to. I think by definition it would have to. Because right now, if I mean, if you take a look at, you know, the biggest companies tech-wise and where they're getting their employees from, you've got like, you've got, you know, like Meta is just pulling up, you know, like super deluxe school buses to college graduation ceremonies and loading them up and saying, y'all work for us now, come work for us. And, you know, at the same time, they're, this is all metaphorical. At the same time, they're saying, we're going to give you a gigantic salary. How much student debt are you carrying? And boy, that gigantic salary sure sounds good. It sounds good. If you're like walking out of there with a hundred grand in debt, 
and we're going to give you health care. And we've got this great campus. By the way, it looks a lot like the campus that you're graduating from. We've got Froyo. We've got a gym. We've got, you know, we got all that stuff that, that makes this place feel like a community. We got that. And, you know, we're just going to ask you to do stuff and you're going to do it. And some of that stuff, eh, you know, it's maybe a little shady, but you know what? We got Froyo. All of that is incredibly enticing, especially the part about helping you to pay down that debt. If I was a hundred grand in debt and a company like Meta came to me and said, we will pay you an enormous amount of money and you can help pay down that debt. If I was like 19 and just graduating from college, I would take that offer every time. Well, it wouldn't be Mike Montero sitting on the steps crying. It'd be crying maybe tears of joy instead. Yeah. I would I I cannot blame folks for taking that offer. What I would like to also let folks know is when you're in that situation, there is a way to, you know, you, you, there unions are available to you. And, you know, unionizing, you know, when you unionize, you get the experience of everybody on the floor together. As a 19-year-old, picture this, as a 19-year-old, I just graduated from school, here comes Mark Zuckerberg, and he's telling me, like, hey, do this thing. And you're like, oh, boy, we talked about that sort of thing in my ethics class back at Carnegie Mellon. That's not a thing I'm supposed to do, but it's like, fuck, it's fucking Mark Zuckerberg and he's helping me to pay down my loans. What are you going to do? You're 19. You don't have any experience working. You don't have any experience dealing with shit like that. Now you put like 55 year old me in that situation who's been working for 40 years, has been fired from, you know, countless tasks. And I got no problem turning to him and saying, fuck off. I'm not doing this because I've worked forever. I know how to have these kind or, you know, I might even be smart enough to say, hey, Mark, let's walk through this together. Let's walk through some of the possible things that can, I can have, you know, the educated conversation before I get to fuck off. I'm not doing this because I'm, you know, I've been managing clients for 30 years now. I know how to have those conversations with them. I did not know how to have those conversations at 19. Mm. You've said before, and I'll quote you, you said, this is not natural. It took time to develop this kind of callous. And you were speaking about confidence, which is what you're yeah. touching on here. Yeah. So what, what those 19-year-olds those who uh, find themselves in that situation, one great way to, to, to get, you know, to get some of that um, experience in, you know, a, a big, quick shot is unionize with the folks around you. So maybe you don't have 30 years of experience, but there's going to be somebody in that union who does. You've talked about acknowledging the difficulties that exist in enterprise in terms of being able to apply ethics. You've talked there just before about the fact that, you know, you can get shit canned or you can flip the switch. There's not, not a lot of options available currently, which is, I get the sense, why you're so keen to see tech workers unionize. You've also talked about the, what might be the status quo in terms of the incentives that are at play. You've said you simply cannot correct a problem that management doesn't see as a problem. Yeah. So that, that comes into play quite obviously with you know management wanting to make a certain decision and then labor needing to enact that or they can leave. 
And you've also previously quoted someone called Upton Sinclair, who was an American writer and activist, and he said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Yes. So with the incentives at play we currently have, like the status quo, it seems like this is an unsolvable problem. Not if you're willing to light shit on fire. (laughs) It's not an unsolvable problem because other societies have solved it and other industries have solved it. You know, this this is part of the American exceptionalist brain. How do we treat workers fairly while also producing quality work, while also benefiting financially, you know, to shareholders and shit like that. And if you take a look at other countries in the world, other countries actually do a better job of this. Mm. Who stands but, out know, to you? Who, who's the poster child? What country's the poster child for the right calibration between labor and capital? Well, you know, you've got those lovely countries in Scandinavia who, you know, practice their level of, you know, capitalism and show socialism, which is a nice blend. You've got... Um, you know, New Zealand is a very nice place to work, is it not? Four weeks holiday. Yeah, you know, with the there, there's other and there's other industries that have unionized, not just you know in America but all over the world. And we tend we're we're like we're tech in the U.S. is like a, a double shit Sunday of exceptionalism. Because one, we think we're exceptional because we're Americans, so we can't look around to see how other people have solved a problem. And also, we're in tech. You know, we're disruptors. Things that other industries have done, things that other workers have done, they don't work for us. But, you know, neither of those things are true. Mike, I'm mindful of time. So as we bring the show down to a close now, I'm going to quote you one last time. And this is something you've said that echoes many other leaders in the design field, and it is, as long as you are a designer, you have a responsibility to make the world better for the rest of humanity. But why should designers be the adjudicators for the rest of us within organizations for ethical behavior? What qualifies or compels us to move beyond Figma, beyond design sprints, and as you've said before, beyond aesthetics and into ramifications? Because that's a fantastic question. And I'll tell you the secret, because that quote is actually uh, wrong. And I believe in uh, further along in the talk, I expand on it. Uh, Say it again. The quote was, as long as you are a designer, you have a responsibility to make the world better for the rest of humanity. Yeah, stop there, please. The real quote, as it should be, is as long as you're a human being, as long as you're a human being, you have a responsibility to make the world better for other human beings. We just get to do it in design because we're designers, but really, it's, I mean, if you're on this fucking planet right now, you have an opportunity that people who were on this planet earlier do not have. You have an opportunity to fix what's going on right now. And you will have that opportunity until the day they put you in the ground or however else you choose to go. And designers do not get to opt out of that. I think that's where the talk went. 
you can do it in the design field. You can get out of the design field. You'll still have that responsibility. But everyone's job on this planet is to help make the planet a more manageable place. If you can do it as a designer in, a, in the design field, fantastic. Because I will say this, at this point in time, we seem to have like an oversized amount of influence on what's going on with shit. We, I say this about tech in general, I, we didn't bring Nazis back, but we certainly built some amazing bullhorns for them to use in the last few years. I think I would say that they're a bigger problem, like, like they're a fucking huge problem. And we built the roads that they're walking in a town on. And we had a chance over and over. We had a chance to not do that. And we turned a blind eye to it. And people were telling us, people were telling us, you are going to bring Nazis back with this shit. And, and, and people, ah, nah, you're crazy. You're crazy. You know, Nazis anymore. Watch. And here they are. And now one of them's in charge of the fucking biggest bullhorn in the world. But the Froyo is good. But the Froyo is good. Mike, that's a really strong and important message to finish on. This has certainly been a provocative and challenging conversation. Thank you for bringing your fire and enthusiasm to design, to tech, and for designers, all of the things that you've provoked in them to think about and through your contributions in the field. It's been greatly appreciated. Brandon, thank you so much for having me on. I guarantee we're the only two people left. Everybody else has left at this point. Uh, you're welcome, Mike. And if anyone is actually listening, then just listen to this last 30 seconds of the show. I'm just going to close it out now. Uh, Mike, if people want to connect with you to keep up with what it is that you're putting out there in the world, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, you can send he uh, all your hate mail uh, to uh, – what's your email address, Brenda? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> um, well, uh, you can find me at Mike at MuleDesign.com. Um, you can, you know, I can't, I, I, I'm not going to say you can find me on Twitter because who the hell knows. But, you know, I got a newsletter somewhere. Uh, MuleDesign.com, there's a, a, a newsletter on it. I think newsletters are going to be the way we're going to be communicating, but that's a whole nother conversation. Mm. And people can pick up a copy of Design as a Job, the second edition from bookapart.com, I believe. Yes. Right. It looks exactly like the first edition, if you can see this, except it says uh, second edition up there, and it has uh, Sam Cabrera's name down here. Uh, she was nice enough to write my forward. And I believe it's titled or subtitled The Necessary Second Edition, so not one that you can miss, people. All That's right. because, by the way, they wouldn't let me do the fucking second edition. <laughs> you know, Mike, I'm not I'm not surprised, but I think it's great that you tried to get that across the line. <laughs> All right, thanks, Mike. And to everyone that is still listening to us, it's been great having you here as well. Definitely plenty of things to think about in there in this episode. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes. And on YouTube, you can actually find detailed chapter notes so you can hop around to the different areas of our conversation that interest you the most or you might want to come back to. Um, you can also find links through to Mike there and Mule Design, as well as where you can pick up a copy of Design as a Job, the necessary second edition. Uh, and if you enjoyed the show, and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class experts in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review. They really 
helpful on the podcast. Subscribe so it turns up to your podcast app on the regular and tell someone else about the show. Even if it's just one person you feel needs to hear the message that we've been putting out there through this podcast, then please pass it along to them. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Brendan Jarvis or there's a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes or head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!